difficult times, God is speaking to the world. The question is, are we listening? Today on this episode of Teachings from Pastor Al Pittman, we continue through the book of Acts into chapter 7 in a message titled, Irrefutable Truth. Let's open our Bibles and join Pastor Al now. Hey, if you have a Bible, please turn to Acts chapter 7. We're in Acts chapter 7. It's a long chapter, but we're going to get through it, Lord willing, uh, today. And I know it's going to bless you. Acts chapter 7 will begin, of course, at verse 1. But uh, I've entitled this message, uh, Irrefutable Truth. In chapter 7, we find Stephen. We mentioned Stephen last week. God's favor was upon him. Uh, God was using him mightily and to refute a lot of the lies of the enemy uh, against the gospel. And they tried to out-argue Stephen, but Stephen could not be out-argued. And uh, so we have in chapter uh, 7, of course, Stephen in chapter 6 was arrested and all. Uh, but in chapter 7, we have Stephen's sermon, and we're going to look at his sermon uh, today, this irrefutable truth. As we saw last week, you know, he had been dragged before the religious council in Jerusalem there. And he was falsely accused, the Bible says, of blasphemy against Moses, the law, and against God. Uh, they inquired of him in verse 1. If you join me, look at verse 1, where it says, Then the high priest said, Are these things so? Stephen, are these things so? This blasphemy. Have you been blaspheming Moses, the law of Moses and God? And, uh, you know, they asked the question, uh, but they really didn't care to hear the truth. Like a lot of people today, they're asking questions, but they really don't want to know the truth. They only wanted to refute it. That was their goal, to simply refute the truth. In verse 2, Stephen, however, begins his dissertation of truth. And actually, he continues from chapter uh, verse 2 all the way to uh, the end of the chapter, nearly to the end of the chapter, in this dissertation. And he really sets up his point, this irrefutable truth that he's going to declare toward the end of the chapter. He sets up his point by giving his Jewish brethren, because he's speaking to uh, Jews here, those who are his brethren, who had brought him before the religious council. And he's given to his Jewish brethren. He gives them in actually verses 2 to 50, five examples uh, in from Israel's history, which support the irrefutable truth that he's going to speak in verses 51 to 53. We'll get there in just a moment, but let's go through the text. You may ask, why does he dive into the history of, uh, of Israel? Well, the purpose of his history lesson is to highlight God's sovereignty over the, what I call the senility. Uh, that is being senile, the diseased mind of mankind. The Bible tells us that the carnal mind is diseased. It is senility when you think of it. The carnal mind is at war against God, according to Romans chapter 8, verse 7. And so he's refuting them. He's, he's lining them up to show them this irrefutable truth and to point out the foolishness of their thinking. The first example, and these five examples from the Old Testament that he uses, the first example, he begins with the promise of Abraham or God's promise to Abraham. In verses 2 to 8. Read along with me. Verse 2, he begins his dissertation, and the Bible says, And he said, Brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham 
when he was in Mesopotamia. Abraham came from Ur of the Chaldees, or the Chal- uh, Ur of the Chaldees, that is uh, the land of the Babylonians, ancient Babylonians. It's southern Iraq today. That's where Abraham came from. And he can't call them out of Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran. Haran is northern Mesopotamia. It's, it's in southeastern Turkey today, the ancient city of Haran. And he says he called them out. He called, uh, he called them Mesopotamia, then to Haran, and he said to him, get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. He said that in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. If you're taking notes, Genesis 12, verse 1. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans, that is ancient Babylon, and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, his father died in Haran, Abraham's father, Terah, died in Haran. And from there, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. God brought him from Ur of the Chaldees to Haran and down into the land of promise, that is, into Canaan and uh, the land in which Uh, Stephen says, you now stand, you now dwell. Verse 5, he says, and God gave him no inheritance in it at that time. Not even enough to set his foot on. But even when Abraham had no children, no child, God promised to give it to him, that land, for possession and his descendants after him. But God spoke in this way, that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land, and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them 400 years. What land would God bring the descendants of uh, Abraham into? That would be the land of Egypt. And they would oppress them for 400 years. They were in bondage in Egypt, the Israelites were, for 400 years. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, said God. And after that, they shall come out. And serve me in this place, in Canaan, in the promised land. This is God speaking to Abraham. This is hundreds of years before it happened that indeed his descendants will dwell in the land of Canaan. Verse nine says, uh, verse eight says, then he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him. And on the, on, on the eighth day, and Isaac begot Jacob and Jacob begot the twelve patriarchs of Israel. And so he's pointing out here and, you know, starting with Abraham, God's promise to Abraham, that God sovereignly called Abraham from southern Mesopotamia to the land of Canaan, the land of promise, to be the great grandfather of the patriarchs, that is the 12 sons of Jacob. And so Stephen, this is really, when you think about it, is he's, he's trying to, he's making a point, he's re- relating to them at a point that they can all relate to, relating to them, starting at a point where they can all agree, and they all agree that they are indeed are descendants of Abraham. So he starts here, but then he moves on. And there, you'll notice there's a progression, a progression in his sermon. He's, he's going somewhere, amen. And, uh, and the second thing, is historical example he uses, is Joseph in verses 9 to 16. And so read along with me. Again, this, we've got some reading to do today, amen, and some explain, explaining to do, amen. But uh, read along with me in verse 9. begins with Joseph, Joseph's journey. And the patriarchs, 
becoming envious, sold Joseph into, into Egypt. But God was with him. You know, the, uh, Jacob's sons, they didn't like Joseph because Jacob favored Joseph. And so they were envious of Joseph and uh, they sold him into slavery. And um, as recorded in the book of Genesis and delivered him and God was with him and God delivered him out of all of his troubles. And he gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all the house. He was became second uh, in command in all of Egypt, Joseph did. And now a famine and great trouble came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan and over and our fathers found no substance. He's speaking about their fathers, that is the patriarchs of Israel, the, the, the uh, sons of Jacob. And uh, of course, 11 sons. And then there were uh, the, the 12th one, of course, being Joseph, who had been sold into slavery. But he said there was no, it was a famine and our fathers found no substance uh, in Canaan, no food. But verse 12, but when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers, that is his sons first. And the second time, uh, jo Joseph was made known to his brothers and Joseph's family became known to the Pharaoh. Many of you know the story. Uh, Jacob and his sons finally came down to Egypt when it was revealed to his sons that Joseph, who was second in command of all of Egypt, uh, was, was, uh, was, uh, indeed their brother. And so he went back and told their father, Jacob. And so he came down and the whole family came down as, uh, uh, Luke tells us here in the book of Acts in verse 14. He says, then in Joseph, then Joseph rather sent and called his father Jacob. And all his relatives to him, 75 people. So Jacob went down to Egypt and he died there in Egypt. He and our fathers, because they were there, children of Israel for 400 years. And they were carried back to Shechem, verse 15 says. Shechem is uh, in the land of Canaan. Uh, it is, is in cent the central area region of the land of Canaan, that is of the land of Israel. In fact, it is uh, the ruins of it is 40 miles north of Jerusalem uh, today, this place Shechem. And lay, they, they brought their bones with them when they left Egypt with, under Moses' leadership. Uh, they brought the bones of Jacob and, the, and their patriarchs and they buried them there at Shechem and laid them in the tomb that Abraham bought, he says here in the latter part of verse 16, bought for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. And that incident, or that is recorded for us in Genesis chapter 23. So a lot of this, again, is historical. Hang, hang in there. Uh, Stephen is going somewhere in his sermon. So, but he's ramping it up every time. From Abraham, now to Joseph, then he moves on to Moses. And the point being here is thus far is that despite being rejected by his brothers, for instance, with the, in the case of Joseph, God prospered him because God is sovereign over the rejection of mankind. Again, Stephen is building his sermon. And now his third point, he comes to historical example. He comes to Moses, the deliverance under Moses, verses 17 to 43. Now, I'm going to skip around a little bit for the sake of time. I'm not going to read every verse, uh, but you will get the gist of it here. Um, but his, his journey or, or his deliverance, 
he points out their deliverance under Moses. And you can see the Jewish brethren, they're tracking with him because they're Jews themselves. They understand the history and they're tracking with him. They're sitting there going, "Uh uh-huh. They're probably saying amen, you know, to all these things. So he's bringing them along. But Stephen spends a lot of time, spends a lot of time here uh, in this historical, on this historical figure, that is Moses. And uh, he does so, I believe, to really make uh, a clear connection between Christ and Moses, as we'll see. As with Christ, the people initially rejected Moses. They initially rejected Moses. Verse 35, we'll, we'll see that here in just a moment. And yet God used Moses to deliver the people of Israel from their bondage. And again, Stephen is making that connection. And, you know, God may, people may reject us. People may reject you. People rejected Moses. They rejected Christ. But listen to what the Bible says. Paul declares in Romans chapter 8, verse 31, What then shall we say to these things if God is for us? And who, amen, can be against us, amen? If God is with you, no one can be against you. Moses faced great obstacles, and yet he prevailed because God was with him. He faced great obstacles. Many of you know the story of Moses, but a couple of those obstacles that he faced, his first obstacle he faced really at birth. And uh, we see here in verses 17 to 22 that Stephen mentions that in his sermon. In verse 17, read along with me. And when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt. What promise? The promise that God would deliver them from Egypt was drawing near. And uh, Abraham, uh, the people, the Bible says, during that time, grew and multiplied in Egypt. Till another king arose who did not know Joseph. So Joseph was a prominent leader in the land and all. But, you know, as time goes on from one generation to another generation, another generation, the people forgot all about what Joseph had done. They began to despise the Israelites. And the Bible says in verse 19, this man uh, dealt treacherously. This other Pharaoh dealt treacherously uh, with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. At this time, Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God. And he was brought up in his father's house, the Bible says, for three months. But when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter uh, took him away and brought him up as her own son. Moses was put in a, a little boat made of reeds and, and they put him on the, the Nile River and he floated down the river. They did it for his safety in hopes that somebody would discover him. And Pharaoh's daughter discovered Moses in the water there while she was bathing and uh, took her in, took him in and raised him, him as her own son. A lot of history here hanging there. He's, he's getting to a point. Amen. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, says in verse 22, and was mighty in words and deeds. Amen. The first obstacle that he faced in his life was when he was born. He was born at a time when infanticide, that is killing a child in the first year, was an acceptable practice to stem the birth rate of the Israelites. Verse 19, the latter part tells us that. That when the children came forth, uh, they were exposed, exposed the baby so that they might not live. You know, the governor of Virginia actually supported 
the very description of, of infanticide that is given here. In his explanation, not too long ago, of how a woman could have a child and it would leave the child there and leave it to fend for itself. And if it survives, fine. If it doesn't and dies, and that's fine too. It's called infanticide, people. And we see it, you know, Solomon said, there's nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new under the sun. They were practicing it back then in the days of ancient Egypt to stem the birth rate of the Israelites. Amazing. But he was born at a time. It was all against him. The, 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 the uh, deck was stacked against him, if you will. And um, yet he came forth and he was raised by Pharaoh's daughter and all. And uh, he not only faced obstacles at birth, he faced op- op- obstacles within. In verses 23 to 29, it tells us that Moses misreads God's plan for his life. Amen. How many times have we have done that? He got ahead of God. He misread God's plan for his life. And as a result, he murdered a man. And the Bible says in verse 25 here in in Acts chapter 7, it says, For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. He got ahead of God. He murdered this Egyptian. He thought, well, hey, everybody will rise up with me, you know, and then see that God has placed me uh, here to, to, to uh, deliver them. But he was getting ahead of God. So he had obstacles within. He misread God and uh, became a, a, a murderer. And then and, uh, he also faced not only obstacles uh, without or within, you know, getting the timing of God wrong. He faced obstacle, obstacles without. In verse 26, The Bible says here in Acts chapter 7, And the next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting. That is, two Israelites. They were fighting each other. And he tried to reconcile them. You know, he thinks he's the leader. You know, he's getting ahead of God. And he said to the men, you are are brethren. You are brethren. Why do you wrong one another? But he, he, excuse me, who did did his neighbor wrong, pushed him away. The guy that was in the wrong kind of pushed, you know, pushed him away. And he said, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Uh Oh, now Moses has been found out. So now he has an obstacle from without. He's labeled a murderer. And of course, as the Bible says, he did flee to Midian. He had become a fugitive, hiding out in the land of Midian. And yet, I want you to see this. And again, uh, Stephen is showing God's sovereignty, and then he's moving toward his point, however. Yet God still called Moses. God still called him. We look at verses 30 to 36. where The Bible says, and when 40 years had passed, he was in Midian. He was, a, he was a, 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 a rancher, if you will. He was, you know, uh, with the sheep and all of that, a sheep herder. And uh, he was there for 40 years, met his wife there. But the Bible says after 40 years he passed, uh, had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire, in a bush, in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. And when Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight. 
And as he drew near to observe the, to observe, the voice of the Lord came to him saying, I am the Lord. I am God, your father of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He saw that burning bush. Many of you know the story, the burning bush, you know, and uh, it was not being consumed. It was just on fire. And he drew near to see what it was, and, it said, and the voice of God spoke to him. And Moses trembled, the Bible says, and dared not look. Verse 33, then the Lord said to him, take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. I will surely see, I, I have surely seen, rather, the oppression of my people, speaking of the people of Israel in Egypt, my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to deliver them. And now, come, I will send you to Egypt after 40 years. You know, it blows my mind. You know, I mean, the guy's a murderer, the guy's a failure. But here's a lesson that we should all learn. is that the sovereignty of God is greater than our failures. The sovereignty of God is greater than our failures. And God still called Moses. In verses 37 to 43, Stephen reveals... That ancient Israel rebelled against the leadership of Moses. Even though God had called them, they rebelled against the leadership of Moses. And he's inferring here, just as those that he's speaking to had rebelled against Christ. And we'll see the connection here in just a moment. They rebelled against Christ despite the messianic prophecy that Moses had given concerning Jesus Christ. You say, well, where is that? Well, verses 37 and 38. When verse 30, it started at verse 35. He says, this Moses, whom they rejected, saying, who made you ruler and a judge, is the one that God sent to be ruler and deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea, and in the wilderness 40 years. Verse 37, this is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, here's the prophecy, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear, amen? And who is that prophet? It is Christ. Jesus Christ is that prophet that he was speaking of that would come who would be like Moses for our deliverance. And he says in verse 38, this is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness. And this is Stephen speaking of Moses. This is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness and an angel had spoken to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give to, give to us. And yet and still, this Moses they had rejected. And again, Stephen's reason for saying these things is to make a connection between Christ and the ministry of our, uh, or the uh, leadership of Moses. As with Christ, the people initially rejected Moses and all, but now the Lord is, 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 or Stephen is revealing that the people have initially, you have initially rejected Christ as well, the one of whom Moses prophesied that would come uh, after him. And the Bible says that uh, here in our text, it says rather than trust in the leadership of Moses, that the people turned from Moses and turned 
to idolatry. And again, you got to stay with the message because Stephen is go taking you somewhere. Amen. And he's going to bring it all home here in just a moment. But he continues on here uh, and he says in verse 39, whom our fathers would not obey but rejected. Again, our fathers did not obey Moses, but they rejected him. And in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt in their hearts, saying to Aaron. Now, this is, he said this to Aaron when Moses went up on, on the mountain to receive the law of God. He was gone for many days, and the people thought, we don't know what's going on here. And they said to Aaron, who was Moses' brother, the first high priest, by the way, of Israel. They said to him, make us gods to go before us. As for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him? And they made a calf in those days and offered sacrifices to the idol and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. Verse 42, then God turned and gave them up to worship the hosts of heaven as it is written in the book of the prophets. Bible declares, did you offer me, the Lord God said, slaughtered animals and sacrifices during 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel. He said, you also took up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your God, Rimphan, images which you made to worship. And I will carry you away beyond Babylon. Now, what is he referring to there? As Stephen reminds him, you know, because they committed idolatry, God promised he would give them over to bondage. And, of course, they were carried away to Babylon. The Babylonian captivity was one. Uh, before the Babylonian captivity was the Assyrian captivity. And they were carried away in these captivities by foreign enemies because they had turned from God and turned to idolatry. So here, again, the Lord is speaking here. This is all prophetic. I mean, uh, or I mean, Stephen is speaking here, but he's speaking about what God had prophesied because of their idolatry. Now, again, he's, he's, he's coming to a point. But I think it's interesting that they worship the God of Moloch and the God of Rimphan. Now, Moloch is, is, can also be, uh, uh, is known as Molech. And Molech was a licentious, perverted God of the Ammonites, a God that the people would sacrifice their children to. And I'll spare you the details, but they would sacrifice their children and usually infants, little babies, into the fire and all uh, worshiping Molech, trying to uh, win the favor, if you will, of this pagan god. And then the god Rimphan uh, is, is an Egyptian god. Now, they brought this one all the way from Egypt. And uh, uh, it is known as the star god, the worship of Saturn, the planet Saturn. And so here they are worshiping the stars and all of this. Now, what gets me here is that, that they are carrying, because God gave to Moses uh, the, the uh, information on how to build a tabernacle in the wilderness. And here they were carrying in the wilderness the tabernacle of God, while at the same time longing in their heart for Egypt and worshiping idols within their heart. And I thought, wow, man, how could they do that? And like, and it's like I, I thought to myself, I thought, you know, have we not been guilty of the same? Have we not been guilty of the same within the church? Carrying the tabernacle outwardly as if we were Christians, you know, identifying with God. And yet inside, longing for Egypt and worshiping the gods of this world. 
I think we have to be careful as believers that we're not guilty of that. And if we are, we need to ask God for forgiveness and God will restore us. Amen. And so it's important for us to see this point here. And he's making this point here and he's going to drive it home in just a little bit. Stephen's audience uh, was becoming painfully aware of the connection to Christ. For Christ also received God's endorsement. Moses received God's endorsement. He did signs and wonders and he received the oracles of God. Those three things. Jesus also received God's endorsement. Did the word of God, does the word of God not tell us that the Lord spoke from heaven when he was baptized and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Matthew chapter three, verse 17. But not only that, but he also performed great miracles. Jesus performed great miracles that only God could have performed. And Jesus even said in John chapter 10, verse 38, if you don't like me, you got a problem with me, you don't believe in me, at least believe the miracles. Believe the signs that is spoken of and prophesied that, that the Messiah would perform, opening the eyes of the blind and all this. At least believe the signs. But of course, the greatest sign of all was the sign of Jonah. In Luke chapter 11, verse 29, when Jesus said, I will give you the sign of Jonah. Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and then came back, you know, was burped up, if you will, on the shore. And Jesus said, as he was in the belly of the fish for three days, he would be in the earth for three days and would rise again. Amen. That's the sign of Jonah. And yet, despite that, the people did not believe. And people still do not believe. But not only that, was he, was he uh, endorsed by God, performed miracles by God? But of course, he was the very oracles of God. Moses received the oracles of God, came down from the mount with his, with his face covered because of the glory of God that was on his face. But Jesus Christ was the very word of God. The manifestation of the word of God on earth. The Bible says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld the very glory of God in all truth. John chapter 1 verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. But again, as with Moses, the people rebelled against Christ. Yet by the sovereignty of God, with no help from mankind, amen, we have a deliverer in Jesus Christ. So now, Stephen in the sermon is drawing nearer and nearer to his point. Starting with Abraham, Joseph, now Moses. And they're, they're feeling the heat, starting to feel the heat, if you will, as he's coming to this point. Now he goes to his fourth and fifth historical example, and I can kind of combine those two. The fourth and fifth historical example uh, are, are combined uh, by Stephen uh, really to make a certain point. Number one, he talks about the building of the tabernacle, the building of the tabernacle. It began here in verse 44. It says, our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness as he uh, appointed instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen, which our fathers, having received it in turn, also brought with uh, Joshua into the land possessed by the Gentiles. And when Joshua came into the promised land, they brought the tabernacle with them, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers, drove out the Gentiles before the face of Israel. Israel conquered the land of Canaan, the face of our fathers until the days of David who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling 
uh, for the God of Jacob. In other words, David wanted to build a temple for God. Now, he's basically telling us here that God gave the instructions to Moses how to build the tabernacle, the tabernacle that they were carrying around in the wilderness, a portable tabernacle. It was temporary. And they were carrying that around and they brought it with them. Uh, and when jo- uh, Joshua uh, came over into the land of promise, uh, leading the people, they brought the tabernacle with them. And David wanted to build a temple for God, but God would not allow David to build it. He had his son Solomon build it. So he continues on. This is his second example, historical example, or fifth, I should say, not second, but the fifth historical example here. He says, but Solomon built him a house. However, the Most High does not dwell in, a tem- in, in temples made with, the hand, with hands, as the prophet says. And then he's quoting here Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? Now he's, he's driving it home, hanging there. He's driving it home here in just a little bit. But the construction, the building of the tabernacle, and then the construction of the temple, of Solomon's temple, uh, he's bringing these points out. And why is he saying this? Well, because he's showing them that these two structures were a foreshadow of the promised Messiah, but not the substance. Not the substance. The Bible says in Colossians chapter 2, Verses 16 and 17, so let no one judge you in food or drink or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come. But the substance is of Christ. Amen. Now, Stephen, amen, is getting close to his point because the people that he's speaking to here in his sermon had become obsessed with the foreshadow of religion and they had missed the substance that is Christ. Are we doing the same? During this time of corona, the coronavirus pandemic, are we doing the same? Are we languishing away in our faith because we can't come into a building? Have we focused more on the the form of godliness how we focus more on that our religion rather than the substance the same christ that is here is there with you right now he is not limited by walls you can't put him in a building or a box he lives in our hearts and he's there with you right now all the power we need the strength the joy the peace that we need is not in an assembly, but it's in the assurance of his word. Amen. Thank God for his word. Our rest is in him. Stephen is now driving it home. This preacher of the good news is now bringing it home. Because after this history lesson, all the way from Abraham to Solomon, Stephen now comes to his main point. You know, all of that was introduction, folks. Now he's coming to his main point. And you say, well, what is the main point? Verse 51, 54. 
Well, the 50, uh, 50, yeah, 54. Let's read all the way to 54. Here's his main point. <laughs> you stiff necked and uncircumcised and hardened ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Oh, that'll bring them back next week. <laughs> but this is this point. And he goes on and says, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one. That is Jesus, of whom you now have become the betrayers of the truth and murderers of the truth. Who have received the law by the, the direction of angels. You received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. Whoo. And when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. Wow. He brings them with this history lesson, right up to that point to a crescendo, they're feeling the heat. He's turning the heat up with every person that he talks about, Abraham and Joseph and Moses. He's turning the heat up, talking about the tabernacle, that it was only temporary, that you missed the substance. He's turning the heat up, and they're starting to get the picture here that he's talking about Christ. And then he just slams them with his main point. You're uncircumcised in your heart. You have not repented of your sins in your heart. You're uncircumcised in your ears. You can't even hear the truth. You can't handle the truth as the old famous movie line goes. And they couldn't. And we see it by their reaction in verse 54. They were cut to the heart. If you could stop right there, they had a chance to repent and turn to God. But like most people, what happened? They began to gnash their teeth. They grew bitter. They didn't get better. They could not deny Israel's historic connection to Christ. And as with their fathers, their obsession with stiff-necked religion had turned them into betrayers of the truth and murderers of the truth, blinding them to their own sins and their desperate need for a Savior. Oh, we have the building. We have the temple. <laughs> what do we need? You know, this guy, what is he talking about? The temple is our hope. The temple is temporary. In fact, it was, it was destroyed, of course, in 70 AD. Now where's your hope? They missed the substance. Their response in verses, verse 54 is indicative, if you will, of those who hate the truth. There are some people who are honestly searching and looking, but there's those also who hate the truth. In verses 55 and 56, rather than respond to hatred with hatred, Stephen responds with holiness. Look at verse 55. But he being, of the, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven excuse me, and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand 
of God. Wow. What a glorious vision. We cannot respond. There's a great lesson here for us as believers. We cannot respond in this manner. I mean, somebody's you know, is angry at you and, 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 and spewing all sorts of vitriol at you at all. And for you to respond like this, you cannot respond this way unless you are being full, number one, of the Holy Spirit, and number two, focused on Jesus. Number one, being full of the Holy Spirit. Number two, being focused on Jesus. Because only then can we see beyond our circumstances. Only then can we see beyond what is seen. The things that are not seen are eternal, the Bible says. And so many times we get locked in on what's seen. Stephen wasn't locked in on what was seen, what was going on around him. He was locked in on Jesus. The phrase being full, the word being comes from the Greek word, a Greek word meaning to begin under quietly, to begin under quietly. The word full with it also means to be covered over, thoroughly permeated. In other words, being in complete submission to the spirit. A person in whose heart there is no deceit, there is no guile. Stephen was being full, not of himself. When we're full of ourselves, we're going to return hatred for hatred. But when we're full of the Holy Spirit, we return hatred with holiness. And his mind, secondly, was set on Jesus. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2 says, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is seated, seated, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things on this earth. His mind was set. He was being full, and he had his mind set on Jesus Christ. The Greek word for set is for nail, to set your mind or set your affections upon. And it means to think, to regard, I love this one, to savor, to savor. <laughs> and when I was a young man, and I had a janitor job, and I did my job unto the Lord, and trying to be a Christian. I was a new Christian, but I was dating Norma and I'd have some hard days. People were trying to, you know, when you're a custodian or whatever, they talk down to you and all this. And it was got to be rough, hard sometimes, but whoo, I got through many of those days savoring the date that I would later have that night with Norma. I savored, baby. Amen. Hallelujah. Couldn't wait. You know, boss could scream at me or whatever. It don't matter. Because I'm going to be changing these clothes, amen, and stepping out with my baby, amen. And you know what? It made the day go by. I think, what about it spiritually? Do we savor Jesus? Knowing that one day I'm going to take these clothes off and I'll be stepping out with Jesus. I can go through whatever you're dishing out as long as I keep my mind on Jesus. Are you savoring him? Stephen savored his relationship with Christ above all else. He saw the Lord standing in victory, standing in victory. Is our vision of Christ a victorious vision? 
a victorious Savior, or defeated absentee God. When we see him as he is, then we understand, as Stephen saw him, that we are more than conquerors through him. The Bible tells us in, in Hebrews chapter 8 and there in Colossians, it says Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Hebrews 8, 8 verse 1 also says that, that he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. But here we find Jesus standing. Amen. And why is he standing? Because Christ always stands for those who stand for him. And he's standing in victory. And notice Stephen's cry. He says, hey, look, I, I, I see the Lord. Hey, man. In heaven, in, in heaven open and, and, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. I love it. The, this cry was not a cry of defeat. Hey, there's, I see the Lord. I see heaven open. It wasn't a cry of defeat. It was a cry of triumph. Triumphant cry. Was oh you know you know will you like me I want people to like me he wasn't no hey look he was focused on the Lord but the world's response to the revelation of God is not humility but more noise and to mute the very voice of God and yet. God cannot be silenced because the Bible says the heavens and the earth and even a sea declare his glory. He cannot be silenced. Psalm 69 verse 34 tells us that the heavens and the earth and the sea itself declare his glory. But in verse 57, look at their response. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears. They didn't want to hear it and ran at him with one accord, united in hatred. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witness, witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Excuse me. This young man, Saul, would become Paul, the apostle. From the tribulation, from the very blood of Stephen, that blood, his blood, helped to germinate the seed of truth within Paul's, Saul's heart. And Saul would have an encounter with God, with Jesus, on the Damascus Road. And Saul would become Paul, the apostle, who has written most of the New Testament. Look at the power of God. And so they laid their clothes down. They didn't want to get their clothes dirty. <laughs> they not get any blood on their cloaks, so they laid them down at Saul's feet, and they stoned Stephen, and they stoned Stephen, the Bible says, verse 59, as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. Whew. Woo! Now you got my attention. Someone's throwing stones at you, boulders at you, hitting you in the head. And his response is, Lord, do not charge this sin to them. How many times I've said in my heart, God, get them. Sick them, Lord. <laughs> like David prayed one time, Lord, break their teeth in their mouths. That's my response. 
But you've got to be filled with the Spirit of God, and you've got to be focused on heaven, understanding that whatever trials you're going through, whatever people are doing to you, is nothing in comparison with the glory that awaits you. Only then, when I'm filled with him, with Christ, with the Holy Spirit, not myself, only then, when I'm focused, savoring my relationship with Jesus, can I reply this way? This is where, this is not the, the exception. This is the norm for the believer. And he's dying. And what does he say? Lord, don't hold this sin to their charge. Who sinned against you? Is your response, Lord, don't hold this sin to their charge? I gotta be honest, it's not always my response, but that's the response in the spirit. That's the response of holiness. But it's not coming out of some form of godliness. It's coming from his heart. And then the Bible says, and when he had said this, he fell asleep. Amen. Well, I got to let you get back to whatever you were doing here. So I'm going to try to wrap this up here in the next couple of minutes. But I pray God is blessing you through his word today. It's interesting that when the rocks continued to fly, Stephen continued to call out to God. It reminds me of 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. Why? Because daily the devil seeks to hurl stones of accusations at you. One accusation after another, continue to pray. Keep calling out. Why? Because the psalmist tells us in Psalm 40, verse 1, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. My comfort is not that I will never have problems. My comfort is in God will hear my cry. In verse 60, he fell asleep. Death for the believer is simply falling asleep. To only awake in the arms of Jesus. I was called out this week. A dear brother in our fellowship fell asleep. He went home to be with the Lord. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, that we are confident, yes, well-pleased, rather, to be absent from the body, Paul says, and to be present with the Lord. We simply fall asleep and awake in the arms of Jesus. Well, in conclusion, let me just wrap this up by saying this, and, uh, and that is that the people Stephen is preaching to could not resist the irrefutable truth. In John chapter 18, Jesus at his trial said to Pontius Pilate, he said this, and he said, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And then the Bible says that Pilate said to him, well, what is truth? And when he had said this, when Pilate said that, you know, he went away. He went out. In other words, you know, like a lot of people, people say they want to know the truth, but like Pontius Pilate, they don't wait for the answer. And they walk out in ignorance and still in bondage, just like Pontius Pilate. He didn't care to know the truth. But Jesus said in John chapter 8, he said, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Make you free. Sometimes people say, the truth will set you free. Oh, it's, it's, you can probably better change this word, but make you free. I wanted to see what the Greek word make really means. 
And it's from the Greek word eleutherao is where it's pronounced, eleutherao. And it means to liberate, to exempt from moral and mortal liability. To be free from the penalty of sin by the, through the truth that is in Jesus Christ. Pontius Pilate and Stephen's accusers miss that which makes for their peace, their liberation from the penalty of sin. Scripture says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you have the gift of God? Do you know for certain if you were to die today that you'd go to heaven? Will you embrace today the irrefutable truth that God loves you? After the horrific events of 9-11, people were looking for truth. Churches were filled up, but as with Pontius Pilate, people soon turned and returned to their own ignorance and to their own bondage. And now we're facing a worldwide pandemic. I wonder, will we listen now? Will you listen now to the irrefutable truth of God that we desperately need a Savior? Or will you gnash your teeth and stop your ears? The Bible warns in Proverbs 29, verse 1, he who is often rebuked and hardens his neck will suddenly be destroyed and that without remedy. My friend, the remedy is being offered to us today, right now. The remedy is Jesus Christ. You see, the irrefutable truth is we have all sinned but God, according to his irrefutable love for you and mercy toward you, sent to the world a Savior. Have you received him? Well, that is the most important question of your life. Will you listen? Will you respond to the offer of grace and forgiveness through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ? Nothing in your life approaches the magnitude of this issue. On our website at cwccs.org, go to the Need Prayer area. There you can let our response team know about your decision, and you'll have the opportunity to choose to be contacted by phone or email. That is Need Prayer online at cwccs.org. The rock-solid confidence we have in irrefutable truth has been our message today. We'll be back next time as we move into Acts chapter 8, where the journey of Paul the Apostle begins. This program has been presented by Calvary Worship Center of Colorado Springs.